Welcome to Bridgewater. If you're new here, I want to welcome you. My name is Matt. I'm the joy and honor of being the campus pastor here at Bridgewater Halstead. Uh, we are kicking off a new series this week called The Good Work, because changing the world is what Jesus died for. Uh, we're jumping into a series where basically what we're going to talk about is what is it that God has designed and purposed uh, for you to do in this life because he has incredible things for you. Uh, he, he has great plans for you, and it's almost as if the God who designed you knows what you should be doing with how he designed you. And so that's what we're going to unpack in this series. If you've been with us for a little while and you remember the series Restored uh, that we did a while back, basically this series picks up where that one left off because uh, as we get into this series, I don't want you to be confused confused by this title uh, and, and see the good work and think, oh man, this is about works and that's not what this is about. We're not a works-based church. Uh, we're, we're a grace-driven church. However, we do believe when you've met the grace of Jesus, some things begin to change for you. When they begin to change for you, they should be changing for the world uh, that you impact and the world that you're around. So I actually wanted to start and, and get into a question that's going to kind of lead us through the series as we begin to unpack maybe what it is for you, that God has you to be doing with your life and how God has wired you and uniquely designed you to do what he has called you to do. So here's the question I have for you to think about through the series. It's this, how does God want you to, how does God want to change the world through you? How does God want to change the world through you? When you consider how God has made you, how he's wired you, what impact are you supposed to have on the world that, that could potentially not just change your sphere, but far beyond what you even thought possible. And as we get into this, we need to, again, realize that Jesus is never going to call you to do something apart from a relationship with him. So the work that God has for you is not to gain a relationship with him, but in response to the relationship that he has already uh, afforded you through the cross of Jesus. And so the good work, as we're going to see uh, here, I actually want you to see this in the Bible so you know that I'm not making this up. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You see, the first change that God wants to make in this life through you is actually you. Anybody who sells you a gospel where God doesn't want to change you isn't selling you a gospel, they're selling you a teddy bear to make you feel good about where you're at. We're here to share the gospel, which says we come broken and we leave healed. Why would we not want a God who changes us? And so first and foremost, the change wants, God wants to do is in our hearts. And we've allowed him to do that by receiving his transforming love and his transforming grace, which sets us free from the sin that so easily entangles us. When that's true, we rejoice in heaven because we've been accepted not by our works, but because of Christ's love for us. However, what happens in the Christian circle so many times is we stop reading at verse 9 and we go, yay, I'm saved. I'm going to go do my own thing now, completely missing what it is that is the result of our salvation. It's not only right relationship with God, but a commission to go do the work of God, which is verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What the author is saying is because you've been saved, because you've been redeemed, God has set you apart and he's handcrafted you. You don't come off the assembly line like a Ford F-150, just a generic human going down the line. No, no, no. You're, you're wired and designed. Some of you feel like, I'm a Chevy anyway. Like, okay, that's fine, whatever. <laughs> I'll see you at the garage when you're getting fixed. Anyway, so you're uniquely wired as God's handiwork to represent the character and nature of God to the world in a way that only you can do. There is no one else like you. 
thankfully. There's no one else wired. <laughs> Some of you got that. There's no one else designed the way you are, which means God has a specific mission and vision for you. Now, there's common threads that we all share as believers. We all uh, are moving towards the same mission to make it much in the name of Jesus and leading people towards trusting and following Jesus. But how that works out is different for each one of us. And so that brings me back to the question I asked. What is it that God has wired you to do to change the world that you impact? What do you dream about God doing? When you think about um, the, the hurts that you see around us, what does your heart really get excited about God doing? Or maybe what are you seeing that you don't think God is doing and you think he should be doing? Maybe that's the pathway for you to discover what it is that God has designed you to do. Maybe you're seeing something that nobody else sees because God has wired you to impact that area. We're going to spend the rest of our series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We'll, we'll turn to the text in just a minute. But I want to give you some context to the book of Nehemiah because Nehemiah is based around a man who had a burden, who had a vision, who was uniquely wired and designed to do something that God had for him. And we're going to see in this chapter, what we're going to talk about today, is the discovery process of how you figure out what God has called you to do, the vision that he has for your life. Because he hasn't called you to be normal. He hasn't called you to survive. He's called you to, to make a huge impact. So the book of Nehemiah, you need some context for where we are. Uh, and so basically, if you don't know Old Testament Israel history, the ancient nation of Israel you know, was God's chosen people. God was working through them to reveal himself to the nations. They did a terrible job at it most of the time. Um, they split in half because of their sin. The, the northern nation of Israel got wiped out, and all that was left was Judah, the southern nation, which was also called Israel. It's a little confusing, but when I say Israel, Judah, it's the same group of people that are left. Anyway, um, about 300, 200 years before this book was written that we're going to read, God said, hey, you're walking in wickedness. You need to repent of your sins. And they said, no, we're good. We like our sin. It's, it's fun. We're going to keep going this way. And God said, if you continue to go in sin, you will feel the full weight of uh, your sin. And so in 586 BC, God said, okay, you want your sin? Here it is. And he removed his hand of grace and the Babylonian Empire came in as an instrument of God's um, wrath and punished the sins of the people. Basically just said, here's what sin feels like apart from me. Have at it. And so it brought destruction. The city was sieged and destroyed. The people were carried off into exile. And the city sat in fire and smoldering ruins. Sin. It's messy. So the book we're about to read is 140 years after that. So you can imagine 140 years ago, here's where the story is going to pick up. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. So this is 444 BC that we're looking at now. Like I said, it's 140 years later. The Babylonian empire that took them over has now been wiped out by the Persian empire. The Persian empire came in and beat up Babylon because they wouldn't repent and God said, Okay, here comes the next one. Persian Empire, about 92 years before this, said, go home. Go back to Jerusalem. Go back to your city. But no one went. Very few people went back because they had made comfy, cozy lives for themselves in these new cities, and they didn't want to go. But what I want you to see in this text is something that stuck out to me this time as I was reading it was this, that, that he was in the citadel of Susa. You probably don't know where that is, but I'm going to tell you. It's in the middle of Iran. And if you're bad at geography, that's quite a, way, quite a distance from Jerusalem. So here's this guy who has a burden and a vision that we're going to see. 
to restore something that was destroyed 140 years ago, far, far away. And what struck me out of this was that his current position was not a limitation on the vision that God had for him. The current position where he found himself was not a limitation on the vision of what God could accomplish through him. And I thought, how often in my own life and in the lives of people I talk to, they know God is calling them to something. They're feeling a vision out there, but then they look at their circumstances and go, I'm just too busy, or I just have too much going on, or I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. And I see all the opportunities for excuses in a guy who's, you'll find out, is living in a palace, <laughs> eating king's food. However, it was no limitation on what God had for him. So all of these other people didn't want to leave because of their comforts. He had some good excuses and said, no, no, I have a burden. And my current position isn't a roadblock, it's a pathway. Because what we'll see is he got to the vision God had for him because of where he currently was. And maybe where you are is not a roadblock, but a pathway to the vision that God has for you. Let's keep reading verse 2. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. As I said, as we go through this, you're going to discover some things uh, that he discovers himself that will help you navigate. And this first one here is this, that he began to question. I wonder what's going on over there. How are our friends in Jerusalem? How's the remnant that... Struck. What you see here is this curiosity begin to strike in his heart about a problem or something that he knew to be true, and that's where most of our visions begin, just simply with curiosity. So for you, what needs do you see in the world around you? This is our first question. What needs do you see in the world around you today that just make you curious? You just want to lean in. You just want to know more about it. What is it that sparks something in your heart when you hear it? And so I actually have a list. It's not an exhaustive list. There's definitely more things you could put on this list. But here's a bunch of needs that are in the world all around us, and opportunities to love people and serve people. When when you see this list, (coughs) I'm not going to read it, but when you see this list, what what strikes your heart? What pulls you in? What makes you go, hmm, that that really intrigued me. Now, I bet there's a bunch of these that you go, I don't want to touch that. (laughs) Like for me, I'm just just not going to touch it. No curiosity in my heart whatsoever. It is what it is. Some of you probably should be involved in it. Not me, not how I'm wired, not how I'm designed. Now I'll talk about the ones I feel wired and designed for, but when you see that, what, what strikes your heart? Because that's where it starts, that God maybe might use your curiosity to drive a passion to begin to do something about that area. Let's keep reading. I want to draw some other things out of verse 2 here. Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. As I read through this, there's a really important conclusion that we need to draw as we begin to chase the vision that God has for us and that it was people first for him. How are my brothers doing? How, how, are my, how are the people doing? Oh, yeah, and Jerusalem. Like, how, how's the city? And their concern and the reply was, all right, it's about the people. Oh, yeah, and the city. Why, why am I drawing this conclusion? Because I think so often in, in ministry or in Christian pursuits, we can replace the what with the who. We can replace the material task or accomplishing something physical with the who, and the reality is, as I read through this, yeah, sure, he's burdened for the wall, and he's going to rebuild the wall, and we'll talk about this more in the future, but he's only burdened by the what because it began to affect the who. 
He only cares about the wall because it began to be dangerous and shameful for the people living inside of the wall. And so he's burdened to do a task only because it affects the people. And as you consider the vision that God has for your life, I would strongly say, based on what I see in Scripture, that this would be true of the vision. Throw it up here. God's visions for our lives will always have people's souls at its core. Whatever it is that God has you doing, it, the end result of it, if it's God's will for your life, should be the, the effect of somebody's soul because it does no good for us to feed a man on his way to hell. It does no good for him to be fed bread when what he needs is the bread of life. And so, sure, we serve at the food bank, and that's awesome. We love doing that. We're, we're grateful to be a part of serving our community, but that's not why we do it. We don't do it to get bread into people's hands. We do it to get the bread of life into their hearts. And what can be dangerous with this is it can feel really good to accomplish tasks because they're easy, they're measurable, and there's a checklist for them. People, not always easy, <laughs> usually messy, and there's no clear defined success that we can put next to a person. However, Jesus died to change the eternal destiny of somebody, not just their present circumstances. Now, in changing their eternal destiny, he'll change their present circumstances. But as you navigate the vision, be careful that you don't make the what the primary. Now, some of you are called to influence a what because it affects a who. Maybe you're called to go with um, help with, um, what's the word, sustainable housing and affordable housing. Sure, that's a what that affects a who. Do you see how that works itself out here. So we're going to talk about this more at length in a later sermon, but I just wanted you to see that as we begin to walk through it. I want you to see his response to this situation, though. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of his love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. See, he hears of this tragedy, he hears of the brokenness, and his first move is just to be heartbroken over it. Grown man, servant next to the king, weeping for days over the brokenness of the people. Which makes me ask the question, what, what, what breaks my heart? What need breaks your heart? When you look out at the world around you, what is it that, that twists your gut that makes you go, oh, I hate that that's true. I hate that that's a reality. And maybe that's what God is using to begin to reveal how he's wired you because there's things that put a pit in my stomach that other people are just, nah, right? Well, that's probably because God has allowed me to see part of his heart to step into that brokenness because he wants me to impact it and affect it. And I also see great humility in him that he just begins to weep. And maybe if there's nothing you're weeping about, if there's nothing that breaks your heart, if there's nothing, no need that stirs you, maybe you got to go spend some time with Jesus. Maybe you got to get with the Father and say, God, give me your eyes. Maybe the comforts of living in the capital, a citadel of Susa, have calloused us to what is actually broken around us. And I think God's inviting us back into the place where that hurt isn't a bad thing, where that hurt would actually drive us to go impact lost people 
for Jesus. So when you see this list, I want to throw this list up here again. What breaks your heart up here? What, what has the opportunity to break your heart? So for me, um, obviously, discipleship and evangelism is something I believe God has called me to. Uh, lost people and people feeling lost even following Jesus is a big burden of mine. That's why I love teaching and discipling. But foster care is a big one that's been on our heart for years. Just a situation as I look at kids, and just my heart breaks for it. No, my heart doesn't break for the housing market. <laughs> Maybe there's some things there. Maybe there's some people for you. But for me, I, I see how I'm wired. I see what God has called me to. And so for you, as you look at this list, and maybe there's something you know, down below that you're not seeing, what is it that breaks your heart? And I would bet you'd begin to find the things that God has wired you to do. Maybe for you, it's, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm going to show a video for, here that explains a, a lady who loves kids and felt like God had kind of moved her heart towards kids ministry, and, and maybe that will help you kind of navigate the own course. Take, take a watch here. So I started attending Bridgewater, and what I loved about the church was the people. People would pull you in and just make you feel loved, but I still didn't feel connected with people on a personal level. So. My son moved up to pre-K, and as I was dropping him off weekly, Heather would ask every now and then if I would be interested in serving. And I would tell her no, because I wasn't capable of it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily tell her that, but I didn't feel that I was mature enough with Bible knowledge to teach even the pre-K room because I'd gotten saved like later in my teens, and I really didn't know a lot of the Bible other than the book of John. So after being asked many times, I decided to finally say yes to her because I figured if my kid was in the class, it would be fine. I wouldn't be by myself. I could do it and, you know, be comfortable. So I served there for three months and realized that it wasn't really a good fit for me, but I still wanted to serve. So that's when we opened up the New Montrose Church and they were looking for greeters. So I decided to be one of them for the children's ministry and fell in love with just welcoming people, getting to know people. I felt that it was an easy way to be pushed out of my comfort zone just to get to know people because I wouldn't do it on my own if I wasn't serving. After serving at Montrose for probably a couple of years, our church started getting other campuses. And every time we were told that we were, you know, opening up a new church, I never, that one part of me felt like that was for us. Until Pastor Brett had told us that we were given the Tunkhannock Baptist Church. When I heard that, I kind of like felt like this pit in my stomach. Um, it actually made me sick to think about it because I didn't want to leave Montrose. Um, I finally felt like I had a home, I made friends, and everything was going so good, but I knew that as soon as they said Tunkhannock that that's where we were supposed to go. I definitely fought it. Pastor Rich had asked me if I would consider praying about it, and the only reason I said yes is because I can't say no to someone asking me to pray about something. So uh, my husband and I felt that that was what we were supposed to do. After serving there for a few years, I was given this great opportunity to be the children's coordinator, and I just, love just loving on people and watching them grow and seeing people take that next step into serving just watching them connecting with people and learning to love people if i could tell somebody 
new to serving or someone thinking about serving, a few things to think about or to look at, I would say that first of all, you're serving God. Don't look at it like you're, you know, necessarily serving the church. You're serving God and growing closer to Him. And also, fellowship was big for me. It allowed me to meet a lot of new people, connect with people that have the same passions and desire as you with kids ministry. And lastly, it is an opportunity to grow. Um, I feel that it has allowed me to grow in so many different areas that I didn't think that I would ever grow in. I never, never thought that when I started teaching in pre-K that I would be the children's coordinator just a few years down the road, nor did I want to. But God has just given me this desire and this growth that I can't say no to. What do you see there? The curiosity, somebody invited her in, began to become a burden. And man, if that's for you, if that's where you're at today, and you say, you know what, I don't know, I have a burden for kids, we'd love for you to get some more information. And we see a bunch of B Kids shirts out there. We love our kids, we love what God is doing in there. Um, and, and as God continues to grow that, the need for kids, uh, volunteers, and, and people to teach back there, you know, I don't feel qualified, da, 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 da. listen, everybody wearing a B-Kid shirt felt that at some point in their life, and they got through it, and they're still alive. So, you know what, you might survive. Anyway, if you want some information, I'd love for you to run back there. There is uh, a uh, paper that you can put your name on, ask for some more information, a bunch of ways you can uh, connect there. I want to draw a couple conclusions out of the text as we kind of wrap up here this morning. Um, I just want to show you an opportunity for you to serve here. Uh, but let, let's look back at verse 6 here. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. One of the things we have to begin to safeguard our hearts against as we step in to serve in areas which will inevitably have lots of brokenness is that our sin stinks just as much as theirs. He's repenting of something that happened 140 years ago. He's repentant of something he had nothing to do with, but, but it reveals something very important as we're going to follow God into brokenness is that our brokenness is just as destructive as the people that God has called us to serve. It's just different. It's just a different flavor of the same problem, which when we're humble enough to acknowledge that, it creates great humility as we step in to serve people because uh, we're not the heroes. We're not the saviors. Jesus is the savior. We're just the avenue or the, the, the pathway in which they hear about Jesus. And, and so I think there's a humility we have to guard our, our hearts in. But I also want, to see, want you to see this promise in verse 9. But if you return to me, and this is a quote from, that God had said to Moses, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And what you need to see is that the driving thing that Nehemiah is working on is actually the gospel that we preach. All the way back here, if you would repent and return, blessings would follow you for the rest of your life. What is that? That's the gospel. There, there's nothing complicated about this other than repent and come back to God. And if the gospel is our leading charge, then there's no vision too big. Because he says right here, and the people at the farthest horizon, and I'm sure as you look at that list, as you consider the needs and the brokenness you see around you, there's some people you think are at the farthest horizon. There's just no way that person's redeemable. There's just no way that person's coming back. There's just, there's just. 
And I read this and I go, okay, <laughs> maybe the need at the farthest horizon is the one that God wants me to chase. Maybe that family that hasn't gotten together for 10 years that seems so far-fetched, maybe that's the vision God has given me to step in and restore that. Maybe the individual who's gone wayward in their choices, maybe that. Which leads us with the question, if God called you to the farthest horizons to impact that, would you do it? Because sometimes those visions feel scary, which is our third question. Is the vision that you feel you have for your life, is it a God-sized vision? If God didn't show up, could it still happen? If the answer is yes, it's probably not big enough. You've got to dream a little bigger. What do you want to see happen that if God doesn't show up, it's not happening? That God has to show up. I want you to see uh, this from actually just the early disciples where, where God gave them a vision that was so big to, to go and share the gospel with the whole world and how they began to run with something and how it literally changed the world. I want you to see this. So God saved and used 12 disciples. One of them went wayward. He got replaced with Paul. So we're, we're back to 12, but one of them changed seats. So we got 12 disciples. By the time the last one of them died, around 100 AD, there was one, estimated about 1.4 million Christians at that point. Twelve guys were influential enough, believed God enough for a God-sized vision that 1.4 million people came to Christ through their ministries. Crazy. Two generations later, there's estimated 14 million Christians. So in three generations... 7% of the population now follows Jesus. And that number actually would have been higher, but in the years 200 to 300 AD, there was about 4,000 Christians being martyred every single year for their faith. So we, we lost half a million who are already in heaven. But how crazy is that? 12 guys really believed that they could lead 14 million people to Jesus through their ministry? But I want you to see what else they did. All the other changes that they made. Christians ended infanticide in the Roman Empire, which is basically their version of uh, abortion. They ended that in the Roman Empire. They curtailed the severity of plagues in the Dark Ages because they're the only ones who were willing to go bury the dead bodies. Nobody else wanted to do it. That cut down on the plague significantly. They preserved scientific knowledge, started the first universities. They began the first hospitals, and even this is true in Africa right now. Most of the hospitals that are running were started by missionaries. And the most prominent healthcare, actually one that we support here, Hospital of Hope, is the most prevalent hospital on the west side of Africa because the gospel changes the world. They ended slavery pretty much in every country. Uh, uh, the old version of slavery, there's a new version of slavery we'll talk about. They ended human sacrifice across the globe. I actually got to witness this at a tribe in, in northeast India. They used to do human sacrifice. And they told us the stories uh, of how missionaries came and showed them a new way and showed them that life was valuable. And they stopped human sacrifice. So like, what did that? The gospel. And people believe in God called them to go change the world. Christians ended the practice in India of burning a widow alive with her husband if he died before her. The gospel. And now they're on the, Christians really are on the forefront of battering modern-day slavery. I just read a couple weeks ago that um, there's a group called Exodus Cry who works to end human trafficking and um, a lot of it, things that happen online because of human trafficking. They just had a major breakthrough. They have the CEO of one of the largest uh, um, sex trafficking and pornography conglomerates on the run from the law. They have his number two guy in custody. Um, they are laying the smack down. They're like million-dollar lawsuits coming in. Why? Because they believe the gospel could change the world. What about you? 
What has God called you to do with the power of the gospel and the, God, the creator of the heaven and earth behind you to go change? Now, I want to share mine with you. Um, this one has to be yours, and I believe God gives them to us in seasons. Um, I feel like when I was in Taiwan, I had a different one, and God has shifted. That's a different vision. Now it's a common thread through all of them, but, but here's, I have two. I really want to see everybody in Susquehanna County to hear the gospel, the true gospel, for themselves with their own ears. That's 40,000 people that I want to hear the true gospel. Now, that's not going to all come from my mouth. Some of it's going to come from yours. But I'm grateful to be a part of an organization where that's one of our goals, is to see this region reached for Jesus. That's 40,000 people who get to hear the gospel. That's a lot. The second one is, is that I really believe that God has called us to impact the foster care system. Uh, here's my vision for what that looks like. I I want no kid in Susquehanna County to go unfostered. I don't want a kid to ever be stuck in in an unsafe situation because there's no home to put them in. The second part of that is I want their first call to always be to a Christian home. That I I believe God very clearly in the book of James has called us to take care of orphans and widows because I want these kids to have the opportunity for whatever window it is that they're with us to hear and know the love of Jesus because maybe that kid... Go change the world because somebody changed his world. Now, I can't do that on my own. Maybe you hear that and say, that's crazy. Good. I hope it sounds a little crazy. If not, tell me, and I'll dream bigger because I can bring a kid, a foster kid into my home. That's no, that's no problem. We can make that happen. But I need Jesus to convince some of you to do that. <laughs> I need Jesus to convince the rest of Bridgewater and the rest of his body to do that. And I really do believe that that is a piece, not the whole thing, but a piece of what God has called us to to impact this community. Because for far too long, I've heard only negative things about this community and what happens with children and youth. Let's do something about it. Let's do something about the broken home situation. Let's serve in kids' ministry when those kids walk in the door. Let's love them. Maybe I'm crazy, or, or maybe I just believe that God could do great things. There's a couple of things I want us to see in here, though, as we, as we wrap up. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delights in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. You hear that? God, this is on you. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the power. I don't have the capacity. But they're your servants. They're your people. It's your vision. You do it, God. Whatever part in it I play, that's awesome. Now, this does a couple of things for us. It relieves us from having to get the results. God is the one who brings the results. I'm just supposed to do the work that he's called me to. But it also frees me up from any pride if it does happen because they weren't my people in the first place. They were God's people. So the people you're called to serve, whatever capacity it may be, they're God's. And so you get to steward that, you get to love that, but they belong to him. And so when they get frustrated to you, it's not your problem, it's God's problem. God, they're your people, you deal with them, right? Like Moses said that, these people that are yours, you deal with it. Well, that's a bunch of freedom for me, because I don't have to be anybody's savior, because I serve the one who is. He realizes he's just a cupbearer. Now, there's some significance to his position, but he knows his place. I'm just a part of what God is doing here. So my closing question for you is this. What's one step you can take towards the vision that you feel God has put in front of you? Maybe you don't have that vision yet, and and you need to spend some time praying. See, Nehemiah knew that his first step was to pray, that he would step into 
presence of God and say, God, I feel this burden. Uh, I know there's something here. What would you have me do with it? Maybe that's for you. I don't even know what the burden is, God. Would you show it to me? Would you show me the vision that you have for my life? And then he goes on in this chapter. And we're just going to kind of read through most of this chapter uh, real quick, and then uh, we'll send you on our way. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So this is about four months uh, later. So he's been sitting and praying on this for about four months before he says anything. When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. And I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look sad? Look so sad when you are not ill. This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. The burden began to kind of ooze out of him. He was feeling the brokenness. But um, what you need to know here is that he has good reason to be afraid. If you were sad in front of one of these kings, they had every right to kill you or fire you at best, kill you at most often what would happen. These aren't good guys that he's working with. His dad, King Xerxes, if you've ever watched the movie 300, not a recommendation, probably shouldn't watch it. However, the mean, bold king is his daddy, the one just killing thousands of, that's his dad. Well, his dad gets killed by his bodyguard. The bodyguard becomes king. Well, King Artaxerxes kills the bodyguard to become king. So it's like basically you're talking to a mafia kingpin saying, uh, you have the power to kill me right now. This is the conversation he's having. However, through fear, through potential loss, through potential firing, he believed strongly enough in the vision to move past what he was afraid of to obey God. And this is what he said. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will the journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. So not only is he talking to this guy who has the power to kill him, he says, can I get a whole bunch of paid vacation, please? <laughs> like, and I don't know how long it's going to be, probably a couple of years, but you want to just pay me the whole time I go to rebuild a city that you actually kind of were part of destroying? Like, you good with that? But here's the thing, that's bold enough for some of us, but he believes that there's a God-sized vision, and so he, with great courage, is going to not stop there. He's going to believe for more, and so here's what he said. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall for the residents I occupy. The dude's a baller. He's over here like, hey, not only can I get a bunch of vacation, you want to pay for my uh, travel, make sure I get safety, you want to build some gates. Oh, and I need a house. Like, I need a sweet crib. You want to pay for that one too? And the king says this. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. What is it that you're not seeing in your life because you're not willing to ask God for big things? What, what is it that God would want to do through you? And if you believe that the gracious hand of God, the power of heaven and earth, the creator of the heaven and the universe was behind you, what would you do? What farthest horizon would you reach to if you really believe that God could change the world through you? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, God, that has done the greatest work in our life ever, and that is bringing dead people to life.
bringing the spiritually dead into the spiritually alive. God, thank you for that salvation. And I thank you that through that salvation, God, you haven't parked us on the sidelines. You didn't save us to just sit in pews. You saved us to go change the world and to, to be messengers and carriers of the light. God, I thank you for the burdens that you've put on the hearts of people here. Thank you for the burdens you've put on my heart, God, that we could step into broken spaces and be the change that you have called us to be. Lord, I pray that that would be true of our church, that we would continue to be a place in the community where people know that life change is happening. God, I pray for those who don't have a burden yet as they begin to seek you and search you out for what it is that you are calling them to. God, I pray that they would be courageous. I pray that they would be bold, that the comforts wouldn't get in their way, they wouldn't be roadblocks, that their circumstances would not prevent them from following you. God, give us great courage because the gracious hand of you is on us. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We give you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.